Welcome to You Don't Have to Yell, Episode 6. I'm your host, Dan Sally, and this month, we're diving into America's two-party system. Now, last week, we heard from Trevor Barlow, who ran for governor of Vermont in 2018 on a fairly centrist platform and ended up coming in third with somewhere over 1% of the vote. And the big question I took away from this was, in a state where 20% of voters report zero partisan lean, so that's neither Democrat nor Republican, why doesn't someone like Trevor get more support? And so to answer that question, I asked Mark Horger, senior lecturer at The Ohio State University, to join me, and he has an interesting answer. The short of it is, our electoral system's set up in a way where if your views are best represented by someone who isn't a member of either of the two major parties, you're pretty much throwing your vote away. Now, there's more detail than that. Mark will fill it in. As always, I'll be back in the end to add my commentary. But until then, here's Mark Horger. Thanks for joining me today, Mark. Pleasure to be with you. You know, what brought us together was this article you wrote shortly after the re-election of Obama. And I found this really interesting because, you, you know, you described this Republican Party that's doing the same kind of soul searching we see in the Democratic Party today. And I, I definitely want to dive into that a little later. But I guess to start out, can you just maybe tell me how did a country as large and diverse as America end up with only two parties? Uh, there are very, very strong um, structural tendencies in the way our system is organized uh, that tend to lead to that over the long term. Uh, and in particular, the fact that, uh, A, we have so-called first-past-the-post voting, um, that uh, all our offices are determined by a vote where the person with the most votes gets the office and nobody else gets anything. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. over a long period of time, that really does tend to um, shake out into a long-term majority party or at least a medium-term majority party. And any votes that aren't for the primary opposition are votes wasted. Mm -hmm. And every once in a while, there are occasions of that. But they tend not to lead to long-term third parties uh, in the American system. Uh, for example, there are some uh, other countries, there are some countries in Europe, for example, that have a proportional representation system whereby if, say, you know, if the Green Party gets 35% uh, of the national vote, they're guaranteed a certain number of seats. Even if they don't win any seats outright by winning the most votes in any one election. Um, and in a system like that, you can devote yourself to an identity to a third or a fourth party or a niche party. Uh, without feeling like that's a lifetime of, of throwing your vote away because it actually has an impact on what kind of uh, coalition government you might get. Um, and there, but that's not the way things are set up in the United States, um, which really does, there's a kind of paradox that I think um, my guess is one of the things you may want to be interested in talking about here in that the United States is a country where there is often a demonstrated thirst for so-called third parties. Um, but there are a lot of, of just basic structural obstacles to creating them over the long term. Yeah. And that's, it's, it's odd in, in preparing for this whole project, you know, one of the things I studied 
was other countries' electoral systems. And especially what I looked at was which countries had the cleanest, most trustworthy elections. And if you look at them, each of them has a proportional system of uh, parliamentary allocation. So just like you said, 35% of people vote for the Green Party, 35% of parliament's green. A um, lot different than, for example, my home state of Massachusetts, where on average, maybe 20 to 25% of the electorate vote Republican, but we have 100% Democratic legislature. Mm. Or you, know, you could say the same if you wanted to point out a uh, you know red state, you could say the same thing about Texas, where Texas, I think, if it were under a proportional system, would have, I think it's two or three more Democratic uh, members of Congress and uh, and a libertarian, oddly enough. Mm-hmm. So, so uh, do you think? Not to go too off topic here, but do you think that first past the post system helps or hurts us in terms of political um, discourse? I guess the, the way I look at that issue is what would it take to change that system. Um, and that hill is so steep as to almost not be worth talking about, uh, by which I mean, there isn't really much of anything voters can do mm-hmm. uh, to change that dynamic. Uh, the most recent example of this, I can think in politics that some of your listeners may have a firsthand memory of, uh, is that uh, in the 90s, there was basically an effort to do this. Mm-hmm. Uh, H. Ross Perot uh, pulled, I think, about 18% of the national popular vote in 1992. Um, and it really is difficult to interpret that in any way other than that's the percentage of the electorate in 1992 that was really willing to vote, uh, choose a finger, for lack of a better phrase, um, you know, this is how much we dislike the current choices that we're willing to vote uh, for something we know has no chance of winning. Um, and there were periodic efforts over the course of the nineties to try to turn that into a permanent third party movement. And they just weren't effective. Yeah. That was Donald Trump's first party. If I remember correctly. Um, I don't, yeah, he flirted with that a little bit. I think that was towards the end of it though. I think that might even been the 2000 cycle, not even the 96 cycle. Yeah. I I don't remember myself, but I do know at one point he, he sort of latched onto that. I, I definitely want to want to get into this topic because, you know, one of the things you talk about in, in your article is the whole idea of sort of party realignment or how, mm-hmm. how, the, how our electoral system has gone through different eras of different party systems. I guess just to help everyone understand, can you kind of explain the concept of, of the party or the party system concept, number one, and number two, kind of what that realignment, what those realignments typically look like? Yeah, so there are two things here I would, I would try to separate out. Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, the first is that for a very long period of time, the two major boxes, the two major political boxes in the United States have had the same labels on them, but the content of those labels from a policy or an identity standpoint has been very different. Um, And secondly, historians and political scientists tend to think of American political history in terms of eras in which over a medium to long-term period of time, you can generalize over what roughly the coalitions were inside those boxes and point out uh, times in American history when the content of those boxes began to change significantly. 
Um, to take a very obvious example, in the late 19th century, the two major uh, political parties in the United States were the Republicans and the Democrats. Mm-hmm. And at the time, the Republican Party was the party that had just fought the Civil War. It was the party with which the vast majority of African Americans identified with. It was the party uh, of, uh, of national political power. And the Democratic Party um, was the party of open white supremacy and so-called states' rights in opposition to, uh, in opposition to civil rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the course of the 20th century, the political content of those two boxes changed, uh, almost uh, polarized, almost inverted mm-hmm. over the course of the 20th century, even though the names on the two boxes stayed the same. Um, and when that happens uh, in an obvious and significant way in a political party, uh, historians and political scientists talk about that in terms of realignment. Okay. And you hit on an interesting point here, which is you mentioned the inversion of the Democratic and the Republican Party in terms of who they spoke to. Can you talk a little bit about maybe what happened there and, and how that happened? Yeah, so there's a, there's a long, boring version that I will try to edit down into a short, <laughs> boring version. All right. Uh, but the Republican Party coalition in the 1870s and 1880s was basically still a coalition of Americans who thought the Civil War was a good idea. And the Democratic Party rebuilt itself in the late 19th century as a coalition of people who thought the Civil War was a bad idea. And in the South, that meant that the Republican Party was the party that tried to protect black citizenship and voting rights. The Democratic Party was the party that tried to take them away. And beginning in the 1890s, the Democrats began to win. And over the course of 10 or 15 years, beginning in the 1890s, the vast majority of African-American voters in the South were disfranchised uh, through a variety of subterfuges involving poll taxes and a variety of other uh, dirty tricks, essentially. Um, And when that happened, it made the Democratic Party in the South, in parts of the South, virtually the only choice. Uh, Parts of Mississippi, Alabama, South Carolina, where the Democratic Party was functionally the only party that had a chance to achieve anything. Um, and at the time, the vast majority of African-Americans still lived in the former Confederacy. And so that meant that the vast majority of African-American political voices were removed from the system. Mm-hmm. Now, over the course of the 20th century, large numbers of African-Americans began moving to northern or western cities. They began moving to Chicago, Cleveland, uh, to the West Coast. Um, and that so-called Great Migration, when they moved to these northern cities... They still encountered significant discrimination in any number of ways. But one thing that improved significantly was the likelihood that they could register to vote. And over the course of the middle of the 20th century, there were a number of uh, places, places especially like Chicago, Cleveland, New York, uh, where there was increasingly an African-American vote that identified with the Democratic Party um, who could actually vote. And during the civil rights movement in the 1940s and 1950s, the Democratic Party was very, very, I don't know if the right word is complex, but uh, if it's 1948, uh, the Americans uh, most likely to support civil rights and the Americans least likely to support civil rights were all inside the Democratic Party because increasingly, increasingly Northern liberals were overwhelmingly Democrats and much of the South was still solid segregationist. Yeah, I'd say that's that 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 define that that hits the definition of complex. 
I would say. <laughs> and, and that remained, um, uh, I was actually looking up some numbers to sort of prep for this because I thought this was a political shift we might talk about. Yeah. Um, uh, the African-American vote for Franklin Roosevelt in 1936 and 1940 was around 70%, I think. Uh, in the Eisenhower-Kennedy era, I believe Eisenhower got something closer to 60% of that vote. Kennedy got 60-some percent of that vote, which is preponderance, but it's not the eight or nine to one that we take for granted as normal now. Yeah. And I guess what was it then about the about moving or what was it what was it about the migration that caused African Americans moving to the coasts to vote Democrat? Like what was there it that attracted? Were, there were two big inflection points. One was if you moved to uh, let's take a very specific example in Chicago. Um, in Chicago in 1900, the African American vote is not really a significant part of city politics because the black population is not that large. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the mid-1920s, there had been a significant migration of African-Americans to the South Side and the West Side. And in the 1920s, the political machine, the local machine that controlled Chicago politics was a Republican machine. And black voters in the 20s were increasingly brought into city politics in Chicago uh, in a city that was controlled by the Republicans. And the South Side vote in the 20s was mostly a Republican vote. That changed during the Great Depression. And beginning in the 30s, uh, definitely in Chicago, but there are a number of other cities in which this basic uh, this is you know basically true. Increasingly, African Americans in city politics were connected to party apparatus connected with the Democratic Party, and increasingly, the Democratic Party at the national level had to occasionally at least pretend to care about that vote in order to win a swing state like Illinois or Ohio or New York. Um, but in the 1950s, if you're uh, an African-American voter, you have this basic paradox about what your identity should be, given that the arch segregationists and some of the people fighting most aggressively for civil rights both have the same label. on. And that changed for good in 1964 when the Republicans nominated Barry Goldwater, who had voted against the Civil Rights Act. Mm-hmm. And in 1964 is the shift away from an era in which the African-American vote is predominantly a Democratic vote, but still uh, competitive is maybe a little strong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's a difference between 70-30 and, and 85-15, 90-10. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. that shift begins uh, the, as a result of the success of the Civil Rights Movement and the Civil Rights Act in 1964. And that's also about the time at which Southern opponents of civil rights uh, began shifting out of the Democratic Party and into the Republican Party. And the Republican Party remade itself as a competitive party in the South, as a party that was not as extreme on questions of race uh, as uh, the Democratic Party had been a generation earlier. Um, But nevertheless, tried to attract white votes that didn't think the civil rights movement had been a good idea. Yeah. And so, and and a lot of that too, my understanding had to do with sort of Nixon's Southern strategy, right? Yeah. Nixon was someone who capitalized on that. And Nixon is a good example of how politicians often adjusted to this in real time. And in the 1960s and 1970s, there were a lot of successful politicians 
who wound up in a different, either wound up in a different box from where they started Mm -hmm. or contributed to changing that box. Nixon ran for president in 1960 and got 30-some percent of the black vote. I actually looked this up. Um, 68% for Kennedy, 32% for Nixon. And both of those campaigns made at least some effort to be seen as sympathetic um, to black issues in ways that wouldn't turn off too many white voters. They kind of tried to do it on the down low. They tried to speak to black voters in ways that not too many white voters would see. But they both made an attempt. Uh, In 1968, uh, Nixon got 15% of the black vote. Mm -hmm. Same guy. But by that time, the brand of the Republican Party had shifted significantly away from favorability towards civil rights in a movement that was begun by Barry Goldwater. And there are a number of, of Republicans in the 70s and 80s that we think of as conservative Republican uh, anti-civil rights politicians who started as Democrats. Another obvious example that some of your listeners may remember was Jesse Helms. Yeah, or Strom Thurmond, right? Was, was born a Democrat, died a Republican. There were a number of prominent Democrats who had white supremacist careers previously who stayed in the party but decided to shift their policies. Uh, a good example of that would have been, uh, I don't know if you remember William Byrd from West Virginia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. William Byrd voted against the Civil Rights Act in 1964. But instead of, of deciding to become a Republican, he basically decided in the next phase of his career uh, to spend much of the rest of his career apologizing for that vote. And his vote on civil rights issues in the 1970s and 80s was a straight party line Democratic vote for the most part. Um. And something that I think is underrated in, in the way a lot of, there's a lot of pundit, particularly a lot of, of uh, and maybe this is the point at which we should put our cards on the table. Mm-hmm. I'm, what year is it? 2019. So I'm 47. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were my age or older, a lot of your experience in American politics was a period in which a lot of these plates were still moving a little bit. Mm-hmm where the, the, to put it a slightly different way, the realignment that began in 1964 took a long time. There were periods of time in which, um, you know, in the 1980s, it had pretty clearly realigned at the presidential level pretty completely. But there were still in Congress some Republicans walking around who were pro-choice, some Democratic senators who represented Southern states that hadn't voted for a Democrat at the presidential level in a long time, but were still voting for Democratic uh, senators or voting for Democrats in the local level. Mm-hmm. Um, that was an era in politics where on certain issues, it looked like there were a lot of independents. And it looked like there was a discourse to be had in the middle where Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill can get things done by being polite to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, when you pull back a little bit, that looks more like an era in which realignment was still ongoing. And from about 2000 forward, the sort of the, you know, the red state, blue state era that everybody woke up to the day after the election in 2000 and then lasted for a couple of months. Um, The seeds of that go back at least to the 1960s, even though it doesn't really lock in. 
uh, until much later. What's normal then? Because you talk because you're talking about two different environments. One where, you know, for example, statistic I heard was when George H. W. Bush was in the House of Representatives. I think he voted with Nixon. 53% of the time or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. So effectively he voted against his own party president as much as he voted with him. Um, obviously that doesn't exist today. So what's, what's the norm or is there a norm? Um, I think most of the, and let me preface this by saying most of the people qualified to pontificate about this mm-hmm. were so wrong about 2016 that maybe none of us should be listened to. Ever again. Um, but for most of American political history, you can tend to argue that there is a balance of power. There is a predominance in the way the coalitions are are organized that you can generalize about, even if the coalitions themselves are weird. I was talking about a period like that earlier where from the 1930s to the 1950s, the Democratic Party was overwhelmingly the majority coalition if it could be held together. But it was weird. It had the white supremacists and the northern liberals in the same coalition. Yes. That means there are some things you can talk to with the other party about across party lines and some things you can't. Um, George H.W. Bush, George Bush the Elder, um, is an example of the Bush family in some ways. Certainly I would have argued this two years ago. This is an example of something that may not be as true as I thought it was a couple of years ago. But the Bush family, for much of the 20th century, was at, at or near the center of the Republican Party coalition, even as that coalition was moving. Mm-hmm. Um, George H.W. Bush's father, Prescott Bush, was a Republican senator from Connecticut in the 1940s and 50s. And Prescott Bush was kind of sort of the old stereotype of old money, New England wasp Republican, whose Republicanism was as much about ethnic and religious identity. In much of New England in the 40s and 50s, a lot of people were Republicans because the Democrats were largely Irish Catholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're recording in Boston. Um, the politics of Boston in the middle of the 20th century are overwhelmingly uh, a politics of ethno-religious identity. Yeah, you know, you're talking to somebody whose grandmother had a on the mantle had a picture of the Pope and then a picture of JFK right next to him. That's right, picture of Pope and a picture. That's of him. it. That's it. And and there were a lot of people who voted for Prescott Bush who were voting against the pictures on your mantle. Um, much more than about any kind of specific policy choice Prescott Bush made, because Prescott Bush's record on the major civil rights votes of the 1950s was pretty good. George H.W. Bush was a transitional figure because he was born in that world and ran for Congress in that world. And as late as the 1980 presidential election was still seen as a representative of that world. He was the liberal Northeastern white shoe Republican who was running against the Reagan revolution. Yeah, well, he was pro-choice, wasn't he? He was pro-choice. He was, he was strongly, he wasn't just pro-choice, he was actively pro-birth control in, as a congressman in the 1970s. But he was also someone who, while he was born in Wasp, New England, moved to Texas and made his bones in the oil industry, in a Texas where the Republican Party was increasingly becoming 
the, a party of people who had moved out of the Democratic Party after 1964. And you know, I wanted I, I want to get I want to get back to that, but there's there's something kind of just j- jumping out at me as we as we talk about this, which is, you know, we we started off in the beginning of the conversation talking a little about the first past the post voting system that we have. Do you think that that almost serves as a mechanism for party discipline in a way? Yes, absolutely. absolutely. And, and one of the ways that actually functions in terms of, of if we're having a conversation about the circumstances under which if you are unhappy with the coalitions in the boxes, what is to be done? About yeah. A lot of people who study this, particularly political historians who study this, tend to think of political identity overwhelmingly as an identity and think of it as sticky. Mm -hmm. To return to the uh, pictures on the mantelpiece, what would it take to get people with pictures of JFK and the Pope on the mantel, what does it take to get them to vote Republican? It's not something that can happen easily. And it's not something that can just happen immediately by making one or two policy changes. Mm-hmm. You have to get them to convince themselves that their um, identity has changed. And that makes party identity enormously sticky. Um, I was talking earlier about the black vote in the middle of the 20th century. Um, uh, if it's 1940, about 70% of African-Americans voted for, uh, for uh, uh, Franklin Roosevelt. But if you polled the party identity, I've got these numbers in front mm-hmm. of me here. 1944, black party affiliation. Not how they voted. What is their party affiliation? 40% Democratic, 40% Republican, 21% other or independent. Okay. 70, uh, uh, 67% vote for Franklin Roosevelt. Some of those people are in the process of changing their political identity, but haven't changed it yet. They still identify one way, but they vote another. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Something that political scientists are deeply skeptical of is the idea that there are a large number of genuinely open-minded, well-informed independents in the middle of the political spectrum, open to irrational political appeals. Because political scientists believe that a significant number of, quote, independents, unquote, are functionally partisan because they vote one way, but they don't identify that way. Got it. So, for example, like the most recent Gallup poll, this is just last week, has the number of independent voters at 46%. So that isn't so much 46% of people are have their vote up for grabs as of today. That's right. Political scientists do not think that that means 46% of the vote is up for grabs. Got it. Political scientists think a large percentage of those people are either lying to the pollster or to themselves. Yeah. Well, so, you know, getting back to what it would take to get JFK off the mantle, there are two things I saw in Massachusetts that really transform the political landscape here. And, and obviously, Massachusetts is, is still an overwhelmingly democratic state. However, the 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 two things I think that have, have changed is number one, the Irish Catholic population, which made up the bulk of the Democratic Party here, was mm-hmm. they were predominantly working class 
during the leading up to the era of JFK. Um, a lot of those kids, my their kids, my parents included, you know, went to school, made money, and then all of a sudden, those policies that favored the working class weren't necessarily their policies anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, the the second thing that I saw happened, and this was interesting under the Trump era, is that one of the critical elements of the Union Democrat. And or one of the critical elements, I should say, of the Democrats' victory in the Northeast, but also I would say in in the industrial states, so Ohio, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, and so on, were the Union Democrats. They were a big part. Mm-hmm. And I, what I noticed, and what was interesting to me about Trump's campaign in 2016 was how well he tapped into their grievances. And how well he really tapped into the idea that uh, that your livelihoods are at stake because of this system that's been set up. Mm-hmm. And something I find interesting about that is that to the extent that that was addressing a real economic phenomenon that really mm-hmm. occurred, which it mm-hmm. did, it occurred, it occurred a generation ago. Mm-hmm. I, you know, that happened in Ohio. In the 70s and 80s. Well, that, you're sitting right in the middle of it. That yeah. happened economically in Ohio in the 70s and 80s. And Trump can be difficult to talk about, uh, A, because he can be difficult to talk about calmly. And B, he can be difficult to talk about because in some ways we're all making the mistake of thinking of him as someone in control of his own instrument, which I don't really think he is. But to the extent that Donald Trump is speaking to any kind of reality at all in any kind of real strategic way, he's telling Youngstown what it wanted to hear in 1984. He's talking about cities the way, you know, let me ask you another question about your family. Um, Were any of them bus? We are living just outside of Boston because of busing. So- you moved just outside of Boston to stay clear. That's something else that caused a significant shift that contributed to the shift. Yep. And it's something that moved the shift out of just the South and made it something that happened in, uh, happened in suburban areas. And so, you know, the Mahoning Valley, if it thinks it's voting for tariffs, <laughs> um, the economic reality that spoke to the diet a long time yeah. ago. And it, it's, you know, part of the thing that can be difficult to generalize about safely, it can be difficult to think about it in a constructive kind of way, is the degree to which, to the extent that you really think some of the Trump vote represents people who have changed their identity permanent, permanently, often the grievances they feel aren't the degree aren't things that happened to them in the last two years yeah it's well i think and one of the things that i think we have trouble understanding on the coasts but i have some understanding of having spent some time in the midwest is that Mm -hmm. the economic shifts that have happened over the last couple decades they've been great for people on the coasts overall uh if your job or your your economy was based on manufacturing that's a much different story. And I think that that, and yes. that, that's really, and you, I mean, you can speak to it better than I can, but, but that to me is, is, is really the, at least the division between the coasts and the upper Midwest is the, 
Yes, although I think I would make the argument that, that again, I mean, you know, obviously there was a significant collapse in 2008, but it wasn't really particularly centered in manufacturing in such a way that, you know, that you were speaking about, about the union support a while mm-hmm. ago. There really did used to be a number of major manufacturing industries that were A, enormously unionized, and B, that represented a significant percentage of, 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 uh, of working class Americans. That atrophied gradually over time. That didn't all happen one day in 1978. The percentage of, uh, of the economy devoted to, manu- the, uh, to manufacturing jobs has trended down sort of gradually over the course of the, uh, of the 20th century. Um, but one way is in which um, uh, the politics uh, in the Midwest isn't necessarily as different as, you might, as the politics on the coast as you might think, is that uh, something that happened between 2008 and 2016 is that uh, the strength of uh, rural voting versus urban voting has strengthened. The correlation in the Democratic Party between do you live in a dense urban area or do mm-hmm. you not? Um, um, you know, th- another paradox here is that that in 2016, the Democrats got two million some more yeah. votes. And they significantly improved their margin in cities. And they de-regionalized that, by which I mean... Southern cities voted more like northern cities than was true a generation mm-hmm. ago. Um, the politics of Ohio and the politics of Georgia are not as different from one another as they were a generation ago. Because in both of those places, I can predict the likelihood uh, that your precinct went for the Democrat or the Republican very strongly by is it urban, is it suburban, is it rural? And in that way, the blend of urban, suburban, rural is different in Ohio than it is in Massachusetts or mm-hmm. New York. But the voting tendencies are almost as strongly correlated. Yeah, that you know, it's interesting. I, I was talking with an uh, an old coworker of mine who uh, lived in, grew up in Dublin, Ireland, and uh, and he used to spend a lot of time traveling back and forth between Dublin and Boston for work. And then mm-hmm. he married a woman from Oklahoma and moved out to Oklahoma. And the interesting thing he said is he said that there is less of a difference between Dublin and Boston than there is Boston and Oklahoma. And, mm-hmm. uh, and you seem to be hitting on that point. And certainly a lot of people who live in Dublin and Boston feel that way. Um, I feel that way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, I feel that I have not been to Dublin uh, I feel more comfortable walking around London than I do an hour's drive in any direction from from where I live right now. Yeah, from a standpoint of personal preference, um, that seems to be true in London <laughs> as well right now. Um, and there are, you know, a trend I think you are seeing. If you ask me to try to predict near-term realignment mm-hmm. trends. Again, I many people who do this for a living were so wrong that maybe you don't listen to us anymore. But but that trend has strengthened, um, and I think is likely to continue strengthening in the future. Ohio, what Ohio used to have is that there used to be a lot of places in Ohio that were 
small cities, but not urban, mm -hmm. where a lot of the job base was a manufacturing base and a lot of the political identity was democratic. And I'm not even talking so much about um, uh, Youngstown as I'm talking about places like uh, Fremont or mm -hmm. Findlay. Uh, places where if you came from New England, you might think of them feeling like the uh, when upstate New York was sort of industrial or when the Connecticut River Valley had a kind of an industrial base. Where the feel was small town, but the jobs base wasn't. Those are places that a generation ago used to be full of Democrats and moving forward are just less likely you know, they're less, they're more likely to feel like Oklahoma to the guy from Dublin. And so do you feel like this realignment, and again, like we won't hold you to it in 2020, but you know, do you feel <laughs> like this, this realignment then it sounds like is more industrial rural? Is that what, or am I, am I misunderstanding? Well, that's certainly something that's happened since between 2008 and 2016. Yeah. And, and, and the reason it has importance nationally is that, like to take another example in Ohio, Cincinnati used to be more conservative as a city than other cities. The Republican used to win Cincinnati outright. And that's not true anymore. And I think that the other thing that's happened is that, that um, you know, this conversation started because you read a piece I wrote that, it was written right after 2016, and in the immediate aftermath of the 2016 yeah. election, a lot of Republicans were saying, what do we have to do to prevent this from happening to us again? And as of 2016, the Republican had only won the national popular vote once since, 19, once since 1992. They controlled a lot more than that because of how gerrymandering worked and because of the weirdness that happened in 2000. And a lot of people, a lot of prominent Republicans said, the thing we have to do, and this is something that George W. Bush had wanted to do, we have to recognize that the country moving forward is going to be more diverse. Younger people are going to be less white demographically, and they're going to be more black and brown. Young people are going to be more urban demographically. And if we don't if we speak to them in ways that causes them to not listen to anything else we have to say, we're doomed. And again, it can be difficult to talk about whether or not uh, Donald Trump is someone in control of his own instrument or not. But to the extent that he had a strategy in the primaries in 2016, it was literally to do the opposite of that. And by the way, he didn't, and by the way, again, he didn't win more votes. <laughs> So in some ways, the people who wrote that in 2016, you know, if you squint hard enough, you can argue that the Republicans still have the same long-term problem. It just keeps winning in presidential elections. But, but the thing that Donald Trump is obviously doing is that he's, he's speaking in ways about race and ethnicity that are both objectively despicable and also ways in which a lot of people, even a lot of people who agree with what he's saying, thought that the language he's using was off the table forever. We were talking about Nixon and the Southern strategy earlier. Nixon was trying to win those Southern votes in an election where he had 
an open bigot in the election. George Wallace was competing as a third party candidate mm -hmm. in that election. Sometimes third party, third party candidates run on something you don't want a third party candidate to run on. Mm -hmm. And Nixon was instrumental in creating a political language in the Republican Party where you could talk to, you know, Nixon was trying to talk to families in Massachusetts who had JFK's picture on the mantle, but but moved to Dorchester to avoid the buses. Mm -hmm. It was literally who he was trying to speak to. And they didn't want to hear that message delivered the way George Wallace delivered. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, even a lot of people... You know, and a lot of people thought that that language at the national level was gone forever. And that has, uh, unfortunately, in my view, uh, been proved false. And so another way in which you may begin to see realignment moving forward is, is to what degree will people have to take a stand on that? To what degree will, will people in the Democratic Party box feel obligated to take a moral stand on that issue on behalf of uh, the congresswomen he's attacking, for example, mm -hmm. even if they don't agree with everything those congresswomen had to say on policy, yeah, there's there's each of those things will win out, not just in the election next election, but in the next two or three, and that's how the contents of the box sometimes change over the short to medium term. Well, and there's an interesting trend, too, in all the realignments that we've talked about um, from the Civil War on, or maybe even from maybe the Jacksonian era on, which is it always seems to get back to the race issue, doesn't it? It always seems, oh, yeah, it all, yeah. you know, it's slavery, then it's civil rights, and then now it's immigration. And, and let's say, I would say, you know, you can couch, you could do immigration and, and maybe law and order, uh, as for, as said by Nixon and later by Trump. But it always kind of gets back to the issue of, um, it always seems to get back to the issue of ethnicity. Does that, is that right? Or yes. And, and there are a lot of observers who would point out that although you made, you know, that was a pretty good list and it was a pretty long list. Mm -hmm. A lot of people who study this argue that there isn't really any issue from which it can be removed completely. Yeah. Um, a, uh, a common pattern of national political discourse post-civil rights movement but pre-Trump involved conservatives trying to talk to your family in Boston with JFK on the wall, mm -hmm. trying to talk to them in ways that were not overtly racist, mm -hmm. that gave them plausible deniability but that still drew the vote of the family that moved away from the buses. School policy is a good example of a policy that is also much more about race often than people on both sides of the issue are interested in talking about. Mm -hmm. And a lot of liberal Democrats spent that era trying to point that fact out in ways that caused a lot of white conservatives to think they were being labeled with a target with the same brush that you would tar George Wallace. Yeah. And, and, and that happens on almost, you know, one um, uh, explanation for the, you know, there really are a large number of Republicans 
who think of themselves as free of blame on, on many of the issues we've been talking about, mm -hmm. who can make that plausible claim based on how they've lived their life on a daily basis, who nevertheless feel like the Democrats have been calling them bigots their entire life, as a consequence of making the attempt to have the conversation we're having now about how racial and ethnic politics infuse daily life in ways that can be enormously difficult to talk about. Yeah. And some politicians have success by doing that well. Nixon was good from a messaging standpoint, leaving aside whether this was good for the nation or not. He was good at that from a messaging, messaging standpoint. And a way in which, unfortunately, it looks like political messaging has changed significantly is that, you know, to try to think of, of previous examples of the kind of just openly out, it should be out of bounds if we're all respectable people here kind of language, similar to what we've heard the last week or two with respect to how he's been talking about uh, uh, Ilhan Omar and, and I guess we're calling it the squad now. To find that kind of open language, um, not that kind of political animosity, that, you know, we can find that in many places. But the overtness of that language is something that you really had to go to the pre-civil rights South to see examples of that. And a lot of people thought that was dead, and, and unfortunately it's turning about turning out to be the case that maybe that's not dead. Yeah, well, I think it's how close to the edge can you push it is, is his game. Except, that, again, this goes back to the, to the extent that do we think of Donald Trump as someone conventionally in charge of his political instrument? Richard Nixon understood there was an edge. Uh, uh, Ronald Reagan understood there was an edge. Um, even George Wallace, when he ran national campaigns, understood there was an edge. Mm -hmm. um, it's not clear to me that a, an accurate, clear-eyed analysis of Donald Trump is an analysis of someone who thinks he's walking right up to a safe edge, but not walking over. Yeah. And if I just, I just don't think that analysis gets us very far. No, no. And I think it's, it's funny because if you look back to history, you know, one of the things that, that you mentioned in your article that really jumped out at me was, you know, the, the second party system in which you had the Jacksonian Democrats who were mm -hmm. nationalist, anti-elitist and white supremacists, and you had the Whigs. And obviously the Jacksonian Democrats describe a very clear coalition that exists today, I think. Um, the Whigs, their platform is pretty much not being Jacksonian Democrats, right? That's a little oversimplified, but yes, the Whig coalition was the weaker of the two coalitions yeah. and the less cohesive of the two coalitions because it was, at least it had originally been put together as a coalition of people who thought uh, Andrew Jackson was a dangerous idea for one reason or another. Yeah. So- and. Go on, and, and I actually think one way in which the second party system, one way in which that era speaks to some things we're speaking about now is that if you were trying to win a national election in 1840 or 1850, there was a, uh, a prerogative to try to talk about the issue of slavery in such a way that it didn't crack the coalition in it. Yeah. 
it's obviously the most important thing. It's obviously the thing that explains almost everything else. Now we're talking again about to what degree does racial politics infuse everything else. Mm -hmm. But a lot of politicians believed the way to win a national election was to try not to hit that directly with a hammer. And the way it kept coming up in actual other policy decisions is that a lot of Americans were expansionists in the 1840s and 1850s. They wanted the United States to move west very aggressively. Mm -hmm. But every time you moved west, you started a new argument about what the status of slavery would be in any new territory that you gained. Yeah. So if I put together a coalition uh, in 1844, James Polk put together a winning coalition essentially with uh, what you might call regionally balanced belligerents. Uh, okay. For northern voters, for northern expansionists, he, he promised uh, that he would uh, pick a fight with uh, Great Britain over where the border of Oregon should be drawn. Mm -hmm. And for southern expansionists, he promised uh, picking a fight with Mexico over where the border between Mexico and Texas should be drawn. And he gave the nation the latter, but didn't give them the former. Okay. Um, but, and it was from Polk's perspective, a great victory. And from the perspective of the Democratic Party as a national coalition, it was a great, not just a short term, but a medium term victory because that coalition remained dominant into the 1850s. Mm -hmm. But... That is also where most historians like me start their discussion of the Civil War. And, and so what happens to the Whigs and how do the Republicans come about then? They the Whigs crack in half over slavery because Northern Whigs were increasingly the Northerners most likely to be opposed to slavery. And Southern Whigs were mostly rich planters. Mm -hmm. And that's the same conversation in some ways that we just had about the Democrats during the 1940s and 1950s, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. And it did not survive westward expansion. It cracked in half. In 1956, um, James Buchanan was elected president, and he was really the only one at the head of a national coalition because what happened in the North is that in the North – when the Whigs cracked in half, it wasn't clear what was going to replace it. For a while, there was an election or two where it looked like the party in the North that might replace the Whigs was an openly uh, anti-immigrant, anti-Catholic party called the Know Nothing. Yep. Um, people who were literally voting against not your parents, but their great-grandparents. Um, and But what eventually replaced it by 1856 was the Republican Party. And the Republican Party was originally an effort to build a coalition out of anybody that was opposed to slavery even a little bit. Because there were flavors of opposition to slavery. Mm -hmm. There were um, some people whose opposition to slavery was religious in its orientation. And it was a great moral imperative. There were some um, people who were opposed to slavery in a way that was also openly white supremacist and anti-black. 
There were some people who thought it was a bad idea for slavery to spread west so that when whites spread west, they wouldn't have to compete with African-Americans in any way. Mm -hmm. And there were some people who didn't really care so much about slavery as much as they thought Southerners had disproportionate power nationally because of it. Um, if it's 1850, for example, in Alabama, they're counting slaves as three-fifths of a person from a standpoint of how many congressmen they get. Mm -hmm. And there were some people who thought that was a bad idea. There were some people who thought it would be dangerous to do anything about slavery now, but hoped that it might eventually die off someday far in the future because it would become economically inefficient. And the Republicans were originally an attempt to build a coalition in the North out of anybody that agreed with any of that. Mm -hmm. And in 1856, that wasn't enough to win. In 1860, that coalition got, uh, I don't remember exactly what the vote total was, but it got uh, uh, well less than 50% of the popular vote. I think it was under 40% of the popular uh -huh. But it still won all of the electoral votes in the free states and none in the slave states. And that's what triggered the first round of secession when the South found, found out that a national election could be won without any of them. Mm -hmm. That was what triggered first round of secession. And in some ways, the, since we started this with a conversation about a two-party system, yeah. In some ways, the election of 1860 was two elections happening independently of one another kind of already. Okay. Because in the North, the choice at the polls was overwhelmingly Lincoln or Stephen Douglas. And, and in the 1860 Democratic Convention, they couldn't decide on a nominee and they cracked in half. And the Northerners ran Douglas. And your great-grandparents' choice in 1860 at the poll was Lincoln or Douglas. Um, and I can tell you how they voted based on their ethnicity. <laughs> yeah. um, and based on their religion. And in the, in the South, there was a Southern Democrat by the name of Breckinridge and basically a fourth party candidate, a guy by the name of Bell, who was basically who you voted for if you were opposed to secession. Mm -hmm. But that was, from a practical standpoint, two simultaneous first-past-the-post elections happening, one in the free states, one in the slave states. And that's how strong the structural impetus at the poll really is. You know, in a first-past-the-post system, if you're at the polling place and you pull the lever of the guy that loses your vote was completely wasted in the short term, mm -hmm. even if it was 49%. The vote, the vote for Al Gore, mm -hmm. maybe Al Gore is, yeah, we'll accept the example is, is right on the line. Um, in Florida, a vote for Al Gore and a vote for Ralph Nader are equally wasted. And that's structural, and that's very difficult to overcome over the long term. And in the long term, the people who voted for Nader mm -hmm. 
have a much greater likelihood, even if it's a small likelihood, of working for a Democratic Party that winds up more likely to stand for things they care about than they ever are likely to create a new third party um, with Ralph Nader and like-minded people at its head. Yeah. Um, That's just structurally much, much less likely to happen. And that both explains why third parties in the medium to long term are very, very rare in the United States and really only happen when something else is obviously wrong with the capital W elsewhere in the system. Um, But it also explains how you can get these coalitions that start to lack internal coherence. You know, one of the things that, that jumped out at me sort of as you were talking about the, the Civil War and the Whigs and the Democrats was, you, know, you mentioned the Whigs cracked in half and they sort of danced around the issue of slavery. And of course, the Jacksonian Democrats were, were definitely pro-slavery. The, the issues as they've been boiled down to today are economic and let's call them ethnic. You know, so the 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 issue is, of course, uh, the the hollowing out of America's industrial uh, base and, and what's been viewed as as unfair trade agreements or, or definitely trade agreements that don't favor those who worked in 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 industry in the U.S. Uh, the second is is more those with a fear of the darkening of America, you know, as a people like uh, just America becoming less white. Do you feel like, are those the issues? Are those like, are those, is, are, is the political pole like sort of earth orbiting around those, those issues or, or is it something else maybe? I think that maybe that gets back to something I was trying to articulate earlier when I was talking about there being a divergence between the economic arguments you hear when you talk to white working class voters in the Mahoning River Valley. Mm-hmm. Because their um, economic arguments are true and legitimate. Mm -hmm. But when you study them from a political science standpoint, it can be difficult to take seriously the idea that they are the primary motivating factor, Mm -hmm. given the timing of the shift in the vote. Yep. Okay. Okay. Is another way of expressing something I was trying to get at a little bit earlier. Um, and, you know, something that you see in a lot of, of, of mainstream media publications right now is there's this whole sort of side conversation. And in some ways, this is more a conversation in, in politically aware social media circles maybe than anywhere else. But there's this whole conversation where people from the Times and the Post go to diners in the Midwest and talk to white, white working class voters who tell them economic things. And then there's this whole side conversation online among liberals who read the Times and the Post that's basically, don't do that. You are just talking about racism again, is something that you see frequently kind of in the world of, you know, New York Times, Washington Post, people who read Vox, Slate. You know, this is kind of my left to center left media diet. And that's a dynamic I kind of see all the time. We've definitely gone down some roads I didn't expect to, and this has been really interesting. So I, I want to thank you for joining me and thank you for taking the time to speak. Um, and for those of you who are listening and want to learn more, uh, Mark's article from, uh, from back in 2013 uh, can be found on my website. I'll be listing it there. Uh, 
so definitely check it out. And and Mark, I guess while we have you, is there anything else that maybe folks should check out who are interested in the subject? The uh, website you're going to link to is a website called Origins, which is a website uh, run jointly by Ohio State and uh, Miami University of Ohio um, that is specifically uh, sort of historians writing uh, for regular people. Um, and that website is specifically designed uh, by people smarter than I am at Ohio State uh, to speak to audiences that I think are similar to the audiences you're trying to speak about here uh, that are interested in, um, um, uh, in smart commentary about things happening today uh, based in some kind of knowledge about things that have actually happened in the past. Um, and so if that interests you, that's another website that, that uh, I encourage you to check out. That's great. Well, cool. Well, thanks again for taking the time to speak. Thank you. That was Mark Horger. Now, one of the facts that stood out to me in that conversation was that in the 1940s, the people most in favor of desegregation and the least in favor of desegregation both voted for the exact same party. It's sort of like when the people most in favor of prayer in schools also vote for a president who cheated on his third wife with a porn star. So it's not all that unusual. Now, as Mark noted, the main reason behind this is our first past the post voting system. The idea that all you need to do is win more votes than the second most popular opponent to take an entire election. And it creates an environment where sometimes conflicting factions end up voting for the same person. And where we're not really choosing the candidate who best represents our views, but the closest to our views, who's the most likely to win. So very often it turns into who's the person we dislike the least. Keeping all this in mind, we really have to ask ourselves, are we a representative democracy here? Or are we more or less a country that's similar to what China would look like if it had an extra Politburo? I think it's the latter. Now, next week, I've got the Data Monkey Mike back on to parse it all out. And here's a preview. None of the parties actually believe anything. I'm honestly getting more confused the more I learn about this system. Looking forward to having you all there. Until the next, this is Dan Sally signing off.